Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, part of the New Books Network. Today, I'm very excited to have Alexander Gendler as our guest. Alexander is the editor-in-chief of the Center for Jewish Life Studies. He's also the president of Publishers Row, which is an ebook publishing house that I think many of our listeners will be interested in. He's joining us today from Chicago um, in what is actually my first quarantine podcast this year, to discuss his new book, Horbum, 1914 to 1922, Prelude to the Holocaust. It is the first of a three-part series being published by Varda Books. Alexander, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Robin, thank you for having me on your podcast. And so now before we get to the book, I know you have you have a very interesting personal background, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. About myself. Uh, well, I do not know what to begin with. I was born in the Soviet Union. I, uh, in 1968, I uh, sent a letter to Brezhnev, leader of Communist Party of Soviet Union at the time, protesting Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. I was 14 years of age. The wow. result was a major of KGB from Moscow. I was born in Vinica, so I wrote it from Vinica. And But once they found out that I was only 14, the only problem they caused were for my mother, and they opened the record on me. Um, later on, I... Uh, uh, became more active and uh, created organization in my last year of high school. Um, the result was that I was placed in mental institution. Wow. The treated to insulin shocks therapy. And then once they understood that they could not do anything with me, uh, they offered me a choice of either seven years uh, east or you're a Jew you can leave and in 90 uh, but I told them no but then uh, they told me you know that they would allow me to go back see my mother after a year or two once they did it uh, I accepted that offer and uh, left the Soviet Union in, in 1974 in August of 1974 but I have not, I tried to go back to see my mother. I have not seen her for 13 years. When I um, was allowed to go back to see my mother in December of 1987, that was the time when Gorbachev was coming to the United States, mm. I wrote a piece for New York Times, open piece, telling him, you know, your prehistoric and glassness is all fine and good, but I have not seen my mother for 13 years. I guess that... Um, uh, article he had uh, an impact, and uh, uh, Catherine Leslie Geld, uh, uh, Geld's secretary at that time, he was an editor of Open Page, called me and said, Well, guess what? Uh, embassy just called now, and uh, they said, You can apply. And they're not stopping wow. you from, yeah, from visiting Soviet Union. So I, I went back, I saw my mother for New Year, which was a great thing for me and her. Uh, my father died in 71. And then, um, so I did a number of things. I spent there almost four months. And then a week before my visa expired, they arrested me again. Did not arrested, detained. Mm. Uh, brought to um, uh, internal security uh, uh, station and uh, announced that by the order of Supreme Soviet of the USSR, uh, Article 31.1, I think, uh, I was being deported from the Soviet Union. So it was the second time uh, I was kicked out of uh, the country where I was born. Uh, my interest in this topic, you know, 
uh, was very, very sudden, you know, because I did not know anything about it. And uh, I was not. Uh, Most people don't. <laughs> right. And I was not. Look at this. Um, John Itzy, executive producer of Morning Edition at that time. I think he's still on NPR. Uh, I, he called me the best source on a subject regarding Soviet Union. That is the best anywhere, including wow. CIA and every, everything else. And um, this best source on a subject uh, did not know much about many things in the Soviet Union. In, 19, in 2016, there was uh, um, a, a seminar or something, you know, at Evo Institute in New York mm -hmm. uh, about the forgotten genocide. It was forgotten genocide 1918, 1919 or 1921, something like this. And I flew there I had time, and I it was of interest to me because I did not know much about it. And so they, there was a bunch of people, you know, professors and lecturers, you know, who knew this topic, and they, you know, forgotten genocide, 1918, 1921, or 1919, whatever it is. They were mm -hmm. talking about the genocide, the murder, mass murder of Jews following Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. So I met some people there, uh, Engel and some other people that made some talks there. And for me, it was very interesting. So, But I came back and I thought, well, I already know things. That's, that's good. And, and that same year, I, I, I went to the, um, back to Ukraine, to Vinitsa. Uh, to visit the graves of my parents and uh, spend there a few weeks in Ukraine. And I was nicely uh, uh, impressed with what I found. I mean, the country was free. People mm -hmm. were free to speak, to talk, to associate, to move around. For me, it was a great gift. You know, I gave my life. So Soviet people, because I considered myself Soviet, being a Jew, I did not consider myself either Ukrainian or Russian. Mm. Soviet, you know, it's like American. Right, identity. rather than an ethnicity. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, I felt myself to be part of Soviet people. And then Soviet people fell apart with the Soviet Union. So, But in any ways, Ukraine uh, is na nation state of Ukrainian people. But it, it had plenty of space for Jews, uh, at least. Uh, did not expect there was going to be a Jewish president mm -hmm. uh, of all places in the world in Ukraine. <laughs> After all, the Jews are gone. And, but in any case, uh, so I came back to Chicago, and two weeks later, I was shocked. In my hometown of Vinitsa, there was procession of Ukrainians uh, going through the center of the city to the place where they placed a monument, a bronze monument to Simeon Pitlura. Okay. Now, Pitlura, for those who know, was the first president of independent Ukraine and leader of independent Ukraine and his troops he have committed incredible atrocities against Jews in that part of the world. Okay. On the one hand, Pitlura seems like did many things for Jews. You know, he was before... 1918, 1919, you know, many of his comrades even were accusing him of being philosemite. He was for Jews. Mm. And for our listeners, what timeline, what well, was that, the time, what was the period at which he was president for our listeners? Well, he was president only for one year, maybe just very short period of time, you know, when he declared his leadership, it was, I think, 
in December of 1918. Okay. And then uh, he was pushed out from there by uh, uh, Bolsheviks. And he moved to Vinitsa, of all places, huh. and established uh, the first, uh, a temporary at least, a capital of Ukraine, of independent Ukraine there in uh, I- I- I downtown Vinitsa, where there was old uh, hotel, and uh, that's where his government was. And he confiscated the house of Jewish um, owner of the um, uh, steel uh, factory uh, and uh, made it his own um, White House uh, place, residence. Uh, right. I mean, let's not forget that uh, although he was a nationalist, he also was a socialist. You know, because one right. of the biggest thing for Ukrainians was to uh, uh, get the land from landlords and from Poles, uh, uh, who were most, uh, a lot of them were uh, uh, owners of the land. And at the same time, you know, while they're doing it, to rob the Jews. Okay. So, and so so this procession then was in the early 2000s, this commemorative? 2016. In, um, 2016. Got it. Wow. Yeah, 2016. This is when they established the monument, placed the monument, for opened the monument for Petlura. Wow. Now, that was a shock to mm-hmm. me. And uh, I uh, could not reconcile this. Uh, on one hand, my impression that Ukraine was free and uh, seemingly progressive, uh, wanting to look forward with this uh, idealization of the figure that in my mind was closely associated with horrific genocide of Jews. Uh, uh, Depending on uh, who you listen to, uh, his followers killed anywhere between uh, 50 to 120,000 Jews. That is direct, directly inflicted death. We do not not, uh, account people that have escaped and died on the road, which probably would increase this figure two or three times. Sure, yeah. Uh, So in any case, um, I started looking into it and uh, started reading, reading, reading. And then I see there's a little problem with this um, Yivo conference uh, title, Forgotten Genocide. It begins in 1918. And I see that my information goes to 1917. Hmm. And then I see it goes before revolution. I thought that the whole thing was started, like they said in Iwa at that time, as a result of revolution. And what I find, I find uh, 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 the uh, uh, 10th volume of a journal Yevriska Esterina, that is uh, on Jewish history, uh, edited by Simeon Dubnov, Shimon Dubnov. Right, of course. He is and, very, uh, very well known. Right, the 10th volume, which he published in 1918. And of course, it was the year when whatever he published, maybe there's few copies, copies remained and there was no way to publicize because situation completely different was by that time. But I looked at it and I was shocked. The things that I found in that 10th volume were incredible. What I discovered there was that with the beginning of, with declaration of war against Germany. Germany declared war on Russia on August 1st of 1914. And the second part of the day, Tsar Nicholas II responded with declaration of war back on Germany. So with this, what I discovered that with this declaration of war on Germany, Russian state of Nicholas II at the same time declared war 
on its own Jews. Wow, associating them, basically labeling them as as German enemies, or is that what the logic was? That, 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 that is one accusation. But the mm. reason, of course, was not just simply to accuse them of being pro-German, although right. Jews were That's not on paper. pro-German. <laughs> this, this is not the situation, like, for example, was with Armenians in Turkey. Mm. Armenians in Turkey threatened territorial integrity of Osman Empire. Right. That is not the case with Russian Jews. More than 350,000 Russian Jews were drafted into Russian army, possibly half a million. Jews did not have any claims to any territory of Russia to secede. From the beginning, Jews proclaimed their total loyalty to Tsar and Russia across the board. I mean, it's incredible, but many Jews from Amer- came back from America, young Jews, to serve in the Russian army. What happened was that Tsar Nicholas II and his army, for them, anti-Semitism was the core of what it meant for them to be Russian soldiers, Russian patriots, Russian army. Hmm. And on top of it, what I discovered after research, they wanted Poles, Catholic Poles, and Catholic, Greco-Catholic, uh, Greek, uh, uh, Greco-Roman uh, Ukrainians in the western part of what is now Ukraine to be loyal to Orthodox Russian Tsar. And to do it, they needed to do something that those two groups wanted. What those two groups wanted They wanted to rob the local Jews of their property and position within those societies. As a result, declaring war in Germany, Russian Tsarist army automatically gave orders to its own troops to start army-organized pogroms of Jews in order to get rid of them. So the local people, local peasants, would be able to rob and take the property that remained behind them. Okay. So (laughs) the information that was in that um, um, Dubnov's 10th volume of Yevreyska Estarina Uh, started uh, at the end of December of 1914. And the reason it started uh, 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 that late was because they did not even understand what was going on. They did not have any information. Hmm. When they started getting information in St. Petersburg, or Petrograd at that time, they changed the name from Petersburg German to more Russian sounding name. Uh, already several months of war were behind them when they started. And this group uh, uh, in new Russian parliament of fourth Duma, uh, uh, the group of uh, several, there was three uh, Jewish deputies in Duma. And uh, I think there were seven or eight people, uh, maybe a little bit more, in that uh, a committee that they called Political uh, Bureau. Um, one of the functions of that Political Bureau, besides making presentations to different parties in Duma uh, uh, on behalf of Jews, was to collect this information. But it started only in December of 1914. 
So they did not have much of the information that started previous to it. So this is what I did in my book. I did as much searching as I could. Right. And I put that book uh, based on the um, information that was collected by this Politburo mm -hmm. and published by Simeon Dubnov, plus on additional information that was uh, uh, gathered by different researchers already in recent times when Soviet Union fell apart and uh, access to this information became available. Uh, uh, American researchers and Ukrainian res research and Russian uh, re researchers. And then I put it all together. And uh, what I see, I see a horrific crime committed by Russian army headed by, by Russian state, not only Russian army. Russian army was headed by the uncle of Nicholas II. Okay. And his uh, main guy for the purpose was um, Nikolai Yanushkevich, uh, a chief of general staff. And that whole army uh, was, the whole Russian army uh, showed itself as a result of my, to me, showed itself to be nothing but a bunch of criminals. I mean, wow. two thirds of the book are uh, the orders issued by different generals and uh, 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 ranking members of that army um, regarding Jews. And all of those orders are just kill, 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 kill. Deprive, 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 deprive. Deport, 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 deport. Um, more than one point... Huh? I said unequivocal, yeah. More than 1.1 million Jews have been uprooted from their homes. A massive deportation on uh, May 5th from uh, what is now Lithuania, Latvia, uh, uh, a part of Poland and Belarus. Um, that deportation alone uh, 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 threw out of their homes uh, 200,000 Jews. Now, when we say 200,000 Jews, we're talking about it's largely old men, women and children because younger men were all drafted in Russian army. Right. Right. That makes sense. I mean, the documents that you include in the book are really, are really striking. Um, and like I said, unequivocal in their purpose. And as a, as a historian myself, I really appreciate you including the documents. It really lets us see, you know, um, sort of organically what this history was and how it unfolded. And before we get into talking, um, you know, about about what happened specifically, and we will, um, I wonder if you could tell us your take on why, why this topic hasn't been written about before and why it's, I mean, with the exception perhaps of Dubnov um, and this conference at YIVO that you mentioned, but that only looked at two years of this genocide, why is it a topic that you know hasn't been extensively covered in the historiography. They looked at two years of the genocide after the Russian Revolution. That portion of genocide uh, the, was the knowledge of it was available to many people. I mean, everybody right. knew about Petlura and things like this. About and they did not know the details, but they knew or at least some major elements of it. Of course, the people that were at that conference. Uh, were major um, uh, scholars uh, mm. of, uh, 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 of that uh, subject, and they made major contribution uh, mm -hmm. in that area. But okay. what is more surprising, that none of them mentioned 1914-1915. Right, and why do you think that is? It an, was it an availability of sources thing that then you were able to tackle that others hadn't before, or was it just that it was overshadowed by you know, events that came after it? Um, you know, um, I'll, I'll start with the second one. I, I spoke uh, recently to one of the um, leading, maybe major uh, uh, scholars in um, Yiddish uh, culture 
of Eastern European Jewry, um, and that culture was for that period. And mm. what is, of course, in Yiddish, incredible amount of information was available at that time. Um, now, in a certain way, because it was never published, I said incredible. Well, I'm going to take it back because some of the information was available. Okay. Because Yiddish writers, for example, one of the major contributors uh, of our knowledge about the topic is Simeon Ansky. Okay. Uh, and um, his book, um, his book uh, was actually two of his books, uh, two books uh, on his, um, based on his diary, on Simeon Ansky's diary and what he did during the war, uh, he have been published in the United States. Very good books. Uh, one is by, uh, mm, she translated his diaries, uh, uh, Polly Zavadinker, Zavadivker. Uh, she is, I think, uh, she used to be a, 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 at Indiana. I think she's now somewhere out east. In any case, uh, and um, so information, let me start a little bit differently, answer this question. Sure. Uh, in English uh, press of that time, hmm. there was maybe one or two articles in England, I think in Times of London, and maybe one or two articles in New York. Although Yiddish press was full of different kinds of protests and uh, 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 heart-wrenching, you know, um, uh, letters from uh, people and uh, people knew about something horrible taking place in this 1914, 1915. I see. Uh, it, but uh, no concrete information was available at that time. That mm. is, people were getting some letters or some information, maybe from neighbors or somebody who already was uh, deported by, uh, and they, of course, could not write, you know, because the uh, Russia censored absolutely everything. Right. And, and they're in extreme distress. And, extreme distress, yeah. you know. So it was not, uh, they knew that there was something horrible taking place, but they did not know what it was. Now, hmm. on the other hand, um, the uh, American ambassador, uh, it was an interesting group headed by uh, Samuel Harper, a son of the founder of the first president of the University of Chicago. Yeah. He is the uh, uh, founder of Russian studies in the United States. So him, his major sponsor, businessman by the name, last name Crane, who was a very good friend of Woodrow Wilson. Okay. And uh, State Department with the ambassador in uh, Russia. They did absolutely everything in their power to make sure that no information whatsoever will get to English press in the United States on the subject. Hmm. Is that because... Um because of an alliance with Russia at the time? Or? Uh, well, the United States was not active. Um, uh, Britain was, though, right? Britain was. And Britain and France. Mm -hmm. The United States was, of course, on the sides of Britain. And Britain right. did not want any problems, you know, about Russian massacres Mm. Uh, uh, bothering their alliance with Russia. That's very interesting. But besides it, Samuel Harper, uh, who, like his father, visited Russia at the end of 19th century, uh, he took position of, uh, during pogroms in Russia at the end of 19th century, he took pro-Tsarist position. You know, okay. like many people, 
like uh, in 1930s, you know, some correspondents from New York Times took pro-Stalin position. Right. Right. The, the same way uh, uh, the uh, uh, president of University of Chicago hmm. and his son took pro-Zarist posi- position. Hmm. And they continued that position during the war. So not only little information was coming, but whatever information coming, they made sure it would not get into English press. I see. Interesting. So, uh, in, in, in France, uh, police actually actively would come to anybody who attempted to publish anything in uh, French press and threaten them with deportation back to Russia. So, um, and then when uh, the United States entered the war in 1917, in 1917, of course, the United States itself became very interested in not having any of this information being made available because what, uh, we're allies with the uh, monster? Mm. No, we're allies with the uh, great Russia, whatever it is. Right, right. And every information that was coming in German was, of course, automatically dismissed because, hey, this is the information from enemy. Right. So it's it's a propaganda history. Now, what is interesting, you know, like, for example, Armenian genocide. I mean, although not everybody recognizes officially Armenian genocide, which is, I believe is a problem, but... Uh, uh, everybody knows about the Armenian genocide. Armenian genocide figured very prominently in 1918 uh, uh, Paris uh, 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 so-called peace conference where right. you know, Germany was found guilty. Uh, that was one of the main things, you know, that uh, allies uh, 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 were accusing Germany and its ally Osman Empire of being uh, of being perpetrators of. Hmm. Uh, neither Germany nor Russia was invited to that peace conference, hmm. and allies did not have any intention of uh, talking about it. Very now, interesting. Uh, what is interesting about this memory of the, these events, uh, talking to, I'm not going to name his name, you know, it's not that important, but he's a very, very right. famous scholar and a person who knows about it. He wrote about apocalypse in Jewish memory and things like this. So he should have known. So it was one of the two questions that I asked him in private conversation uh, was, how come does he think that this was forgotten? And his mm. answer was, well, it's because Holocaust covered it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that is, that's sort of the general narrative, I think, that is in Jewish historiography about why past violence isn't researched as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I suppose I'm not surprised that that was the answer. That you were given. Well, <clears throat> if it would be a general uh, person or a person who is not an expert in memory, mm. in Jewish memory, I would have accepted it. Mm. But it was not a general person. It was the expert in Jewish memory. Well, this sort of is a good, a good segue into another one of my questions, which is... Um, you know, that you your subheading for the book is prelude to the Holocaust. And so are would you argue that this was one event sort of, you know, in a narrative arc that leads to the Holocaust then? Like did it did it contribute to the escalation of violence, to the for to the ability of of people in, you know, the pale of settlement to carry out extensive and terrible genocide decades later. Um, So in that sense, are you somewhat agreeing with him that maybe the Holocaust did not cover it up, but overshadow the memory? Okay, Robin, uh, I'm going to get to your question, but before I'm going to get to it, I'm uh, going to just (laughs) comment on this comment that you generally agree with him because uh, what I, told him was this. Oh, I'm not saying I generally agree with him. I'm saying I'm not surprised he said that. 
but okay. my opinion so, is <laughs> Right, because uh, I, I thought so too initially. It was one of the... Uh, one of the thoughts that comes to mind, you know, because, you know, a big uh, event overshadows little event because you're talking about, you know, six million dead and a horrific two-thirds of European jury murder. Right. Uh, 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 what that has to do with this. And then you find things like on the fourth page of my book, I prominently, prominently, for this reason, display the citation of the chief rabbi of Vienna, who died in 1927. Mm-hmm. And I have it, was, it open. Huh? I have it open. Right. And it was from preface to 1926 edition of Abel Pons' book from which I took the uh, images that Abel Pan created. So, in our translation, it was in German, but in our translation in English, it sounds like this. Humanity has a short memory. Who today, that is in 1926, still speaks of the atrocities committed by the Russian Tsar? So, the rabbi knows about these atrocities. Right. But already in 1926, nobody speaks about them. Fascinating. Fascinating. Now, um, and the question is of connection between the atrocities and genocide of Russian Jews in 1914-1922 period, and specifically in 1914-1915, to Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Second World War was continuation of the First World War. It was continuation of the process that may, I mean, depending on how you want to look at it, you know, uh, 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 some people look at Second World War just simply as a byproduct of uh, Hitler's uh, uh, charisma uh, and German participation and on and on. You know, people find different reasons for whatever for whatever they want to believe. Um, and... Um, but my view of this, why I connected it, is because um, the 19, uh, 19th century and 20th century is the product is the is the time of establishing of collapse of empires, European empires, and establishing right. of the nation states. Right now. Before Jews were subjected often to different types of uh, horrible things, I mean, 17th century, the Crusades, and on and on and on. But mm -hmm. within the context of uh, the societies that where it took place or which came as a result of these uh, events, there was still a place where Jews uh, found to be needed by at least some important actors within those societies. For example, landowners. Right. When you have creation, a process of creation of nation states, uh, the leading actors in this process want Jews only to help them to create their nation-state. Mm. Once their nation-state is created, they don't need Jews anymore. I see. 
In Poland, especially, it was very, very pronounced because the uh, Jews constituted about 10% of Polish population. And uh, in the cities, probably 40 to 60% or more. Hmm. And in manufacturing and industry, uh, the Poles who wanted to create a Polish nation saw it as, first of all, Catholic. Secondly, it was ethnically Polish. And the Poles should dominate industry, commerce, um, education, whatever else you want to put. They had no need for Jews. It was not only Mm. in Poland. It was in many other countries. I studied Turkey and was there as well. So that is the process. That is, 20th century was the time when uh, the this feeling that we no longer need any Jews here. Going all the way to the feeling uh, we'd be better off if all Jews would be dead. Hmm. Was not only the number one feeling among Polish nationalists, fascists, especially of um, People's Democratic Party of Dumski, who were very pro-Russian because they thought that Russia was going to help them get their western part of Poland from Germany. And so combination, and Russia in its own way, wanted these nationalist Poles loyalty. Uh, They could not get that loyalty uh, on basis of religion. Because Poles are Catholics, Russians Orthodox. So they could get that loyalty only on a basis of common hostility towards somebody else. Poles were hostile to Germans, but not all Poles were hostile to all Germans. For example, Kulsutsky mm. army, you know, that was being raised, was in uh, uh, German-dominated Austro-Hungarian Empire. That's who was their protector, enemy of Russia. And it's these uh, 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 different actors within First World War that determined from their own personal interests why they wanted to kill Jews. And all of them wanted to kill Jews. All. Wow. Poles, Ukrainians, Lithuanians, Latvians, Russians, and once again, not all Lithuanians all the time. And not even all Poles uh, uh, at the time. For example, Pilsudski that I mentioned, you know, he needed Jews in order to create independent Poland. And so did Latvians in Latvia, you know, and uh, Lithuanians, and so Petlura in 1918 Ukraine. But it's only for this period of trying to create, to build what they need. They need assistance of Jews. Once they get to power, they no longer need any Jews. They want to kill them all because they want to free the space for their own followers. So I see. So please go ahead. So it is in that way that I see the Hurbam, and this is how it was called Hurbam at that time by Yiddish speakers. Mm-hmm. In fact, they thought it was considered uh, the third Hurbam. Uh, that is after the first and second temple destruction. And uh, Dubnov considered it the most horrible destruction of Jews in all two millennia of them being in exile. Wow. Wow. I mean, he lived till the Second World War and he was murdered. Right. 
at that time. But uh, in 1918, he considered it to be the worst that there could possibly be. In any case, uh, so, uh, but for me, the issue of memory that you touched on is very interesting. I mean, uh, today, if you ask anybody, I'm, I'm talking about people that know these things, you know, what is the first genocide in Europe? Probably they will answer Armenian genocide. Uh, Armenian genocide, if I remember correctly, Armenians uh, uh, start on April 24th or 26th of 1915. That is eight months after the mass murders of Jews by Russian forces. Wow. So, so this was, in your argument, the first European genocide? Chronologically, of course, it was the first. Mm -hmm. In terms of the number of dead, there could be arguments because, you know, uh, Armenian genocide, uh, there lived, I think, I do not, I'm not a specialist in that area. I think there lived about 1.2 million or 1.5 million Armenians. And uh, uh, the number I accept of dead, uh, dead probably 600 or 700,000. This number is now raised to 1.5 million because they take into consideration all those that were able to escape to Armenia, to other places. I do not know. I'm not a specialist, but whatever mm-hmm. it is. In here, we're talking about uh, during the army pogroms, uh, starting with the First World War and continuing all the way through 1915, 1916, uh, we're talking about immediately tens of thousands of murdered people. Wow. Uh, there was, and uh, the deportations, for example, a massive deportation from um from what is now Lithuania, Latvia, and Belarusia of a May 5th deportation. So the orders came out um, in April, and uh, uh, on May 5th, 200,000 Jews have been uh, deported, uh, 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 some by uh, in uh, cattle cars, most of them on foot. Uh, altogether, uh, 1.1 million Jews have been uprooted, and um, judging on the basis from uh, uh, the number of dead normally during such deportations, during the wartime deportations, we're talking about minimum 300,000 dead. Minimum. Wow, those are huh? remarkable, num- remarkable numbers, really, really remarkable numbers for a history that is very unknown. Well, I'm going by the same uh, approach that is taken to Armenian pogrom. That is, uh, Mm -hmm. the 700,000 dead in Armenian pogroms was not the people that were dead, but people that who died during these deportations and during these transfers and during these massacres that took place there. So how, I mean, I'm always so interested in how researchers go about finding the information that they that they ultimately find? How did you go about uncovering, you know, um, documentation for this? How did, you you know, beyond, uh, you mentioned these, the sort of letters that were sent in, you know, at the time contemporaneously. And of course there's Dubnov's book, but you do so much more than that. How did you go about finding all of this documentation? Uh, Once you, uh, get the idea of what you are looking for. And uh, uh, once you understand what you see, to find information is not that difficult. I did not have to go 
to any special uh, uh, archives or some secret bunkers or whatever it is. The information is available, you know, that I collected and put together, basically information available online and in uh, scholarly journals here and there. Oh, it's just putting the pieces together. Putting the pieces together. together. I mean, when mm-hmm. I asked uh, that uh, uh, historian uh, of Yiddish culture uh, about why he never uses the word genocide. I mean, he he writes about this. He, 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 he writes, he cites, he gives the information about the horrific events that took place, but he never puts it all in one. That is, he does not... Um, I do not know. Maybe, uh, maybe it's just uh, a process or approach that you take when you come to a particular uh, subject. Or uh, I have to say that uh, to, to 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 determine that it was a planned genocide, I of course needed to become familiar with the. Um, with the um, army orders that were issued. Right. Right. And uh, and that was uh, what helped me because the orders have been put together and have been published in 1926. In Berlin, and um, they were collected by the uh, uh, name uh, uh, Joseph Gessen. Now, not I have taken all information that were provided in his book. Plus, I got information from other uh, scholars uh, wherever I could find. Uh, as I said, you know. American, Russian, Ukrainian scholars. Ukrainian hmm. uh, uh, scholars were helpful in uh, uh, helping uh, to bring the orders and the activity of Russian army all the way to the first week of the war. Because uh, that information was not available um, to uh, that Politburo group that I mentioned before. They started okay. only in December. And uh, but it was in uh, archives. It was in Ukrainian and Kiev archives uh, of uh, local at that time Russian police in Ukraine uh, and uh, a bunch of other places. You know, like anybody else. You know, I just tried to find it. I'm sure that there's many more documents available. Just <clears throat> yeah. But uh, one interesting. Arc, uh, one one interesting um, uh, document, I think, for me, was very interesting, was uh, the uh, um, response to um, a request uh, regarding dismissal of all Jews from engineering building teams of Russian army in 1916 and non-admission of them to any future work in those teams. It was response by um, Alexeyev who became the chief of staff instead of Yanushkevich uh, because the commander-in-chief at this time was Nicholas II himself. So what this Alexeyev writes uh, basically he says we do not want any work done if you cannot do it without Jews. And then what he says, uh, uh, but more important, more important to me, that is, we're talking about Jews in the Russian army. Right. Uh, But what more important in this little 
insignificant um, uh, letter that uh, I'm talking about is that he says, following the demand of the higher ups in the military, I request the issuance of order concerning immediate dismissal of all Jews without exception. Now, what is interesting, we're dealing here with the chief of staff of the Russian army. The only person who is higher than him is commander-in-chief of the army. Which is Nicholas II. Which is Nicholas II. Wow. So this document, there's indirect uh, uh, testimonies to, of course, Nicholas being the chief murderer of Jews. Wow. But uh, this document points finger directly at him. Yep. He is now a saint wow. of Russian church. Yeah, that's... Uh, there are, I mean, there are so many fascinating documents that you publish in this book. It really is. Um, you know, it's not only a piece of historical research, but it's also in and of itself like a source, a source resource. Um, it's really, yeah... I, I, uh, Robin, I tried to stay away from um, generalizations and uh, uh, drawing conclusions as much as possible. I tried to make the book um, as the source for people who are interested in the topic in order for those people that were murdered not to be forgotten. Yeah, and I think I think it does that. I think it does exactly that. Um. And I mean, I'm. I regret that we're running out of time because there's so much more that I'd that I'd like to discuss. But I really do encourage our reader or our listeners to go out and and you know find or purchase a copy of this book because not only do, is Alexander's you know the first half of it is Alexander's um, interpretation of the history, but the second half is entirely documents. And there's also a lot of really amazing artwork um, in here by. Is it Abelpan? Abelpan. Abelpan. Yes. Um, Abelpan, who you mentioned um, in the quote from the chief rabbi of Vienna. Um, there's there's really so much in here, and um, but before I let you go, I do want to talk about sort of what this entire project looks like because I know you know you're editor in chief of the Forgotten Genocide Project. This is just the first of three volumes that are going to come out. Um, on on this forgotten genocide, um, could you tell us a little bit more about you know what the what the next two volumes will cover and and about the project in general? Um, well, the other volumes are not going to be as earth shaking in my mind as this one. Okay, uh, <laughs> we'd still love to have you back on to discuss them, but well, thank you very much. <laughs> I, I look forward to it. Uh, but they will bring information in English. They'll make available um, uh, documents and information uh, to English speakers about uh, uh, the events uh, of uh, second portion of this period, that is specifically 1917, 1918, 1919, 1921, 22, where uh, mm -hmm. different actors decided uh, that they want to kill Jews in large numbers. I mean, uh, not only uh, Petlura and his Ukrainian uh, troops, but also Russian troops that were financed, that is, white Russian troops that were financed by England and the United States. And that is, uh, I do not want English men or Americans to simply ignore something like hmm. this. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, and um, I do not want to stick it in anybody's face because uh, people that did it long ago are gone. But things are 
taking, you know, when I started this project several years ago, uh, on, on a website for this project, uh, I wrote that the reason, one of the reasons that I do this project is in order for things like this not to happen in America. So sometime in the future, some people would not look at things that happened to American Jews at what happened to Russian, like what we're the way we look at what happened to Russian Jews now. At that mm. time, I did not know, did not, could not foresee that it was just within very short period, within short distance, where uh, from massacre at Pittsburgh and at California and uh, in New Jersey yeah. and on and on. Nothing like this ever happened before in the United States. Not to Jews. <laughs> it's happening now. The United States is not that different from Russia. Yeah, the United States is a democracy, but it's multicultural, multinational, multi-religious society. Hmm. Any society that has part of its name union, united, federated, shows its own Achilles heel. Because by affirming, by insisting that it is united, it shows that it can be disunited. Mm. The United States is not an exception. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope that, you know, what you've written about and researched helps to prevent any sort of historical repetition. And when we talk about it, like when I look at Russia today, now Putin can be looked at as uh, good or bad, whatever, you know, I, I personally believe that I, I do not see with, you know, when I was, when I uh, uh, raised uh, 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 demand uh, on the Soviet Union uh, uh, in 1970, that is when I was in uh, school, and my demand was uh, abolition of uh, one-party dictatorship and uh, institution of uh, Soviets that is a rep representative government in the Soviet Union. I was 16 at that time. And uh, I, as a Jew and as an individual, do not see myself comfortably living in any dictatorship. I thought at that time that Russia had the potential of being free. Now, mm. what is interesting in Ukraine, I did find that feeling of freedom today. But Ukraine mm -hmm. is different in its makeup than Russia. The same, what I would say, you know, uh, a Malek complex that created Khmelnytsky's butchery of Jews in 1648. Mm -hmm. That same Amalek concept uh, uh, was indication at that time and this time of freedom, natural inclination toward freedom that is um, integral part of the Ukrainian nation. Why? In what way? Unlike in Poland, which is largely, almost totally Catholic, Ukraine is divided by languages, by history, by religious affiliation. So this multiplicity of different identities allows or forces Ukraine toward freedom. Russia, at least for now, uh, who knows what is going to happen in the future. Uh, hmm. Russia is different in that respect. Uh, Russia was empire, multicultural, but the insistence on a single religion, Russian orthodoxy, plays a very important role in 
psychology of that nation. And when you have country not of rights, not of law, but country of ideals, that is a very, very dangerous thing. It could be a very good thing sometimes for a short period of time, but on the whole, for me as a Jew, is a dangerous thing. For me, hmm. country of rights, that is like the United States, is the best thing. Well, at least for the last 50 years. I do not know because when you look back to the United States, there's some uh, parts of uh, uh, this country's history that are not very welcoming to Jews. But in the last 50 years, when the United States uh, after 1960s changes that it took place in the United States, plus the United States confronted Soviet Union, where it needed uh, a club of Jewish uh, immigration to fight uh, Soviet Union, whatever, whatever interest. Uh, I, I prefer, of course, uh, the multicultural societies. Jews always, throughout our history, preferred multicultural society. But this precisely multicultural uh, 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 nature of society is also a source of great danger to our people. And this is what happened 100 years ago, and this can happen again anywhere. That's why I said that the United States is no different in that respect than Russia. Well, Alexander, I look forward to continuing our discussion hopefully in the next year or two. Right. Um, and I really thank you for joining us today. This has been really fascinating and enlightening. And um, once again, Alexander's book is called Hurbum, 1914 to 1922. Thank you so much for joining us. Robin, thank you for having me. And you have a great day. Stay away from this uh, thing that is going you around. You too. Stay <laughs> healthy. What a time we live right. in right now. I know. I know. Um, in any yes. case. Yes. Enjoy, enjoy your, uh, I hope you get out of the basement recording studio right. at least. Thank you very much for having <laughs> me and I look forward right. to doing more of it. You have a great day. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you, Alexander. Bye.